anybody whining at Goldman Sachs right now. If you don't like it, go somewhere else. You know, test mm -hmm. the market. See what it's like when you don't have that jersey on. See see what your your worth is like. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Tuesday, February 21st. Today, I'm joined by Bill Cohan to talk about drama in the world of high finance. There's a lot of grumpiness at Goldman Sachs, led by erstwhile DJ David Solomon, after a difficult year led to layoffs and pay cuts. And in the crypto sector, FTX might have actually scored a win after a judge declined to recommend an independent investigation into the collapse of Sam Bankman-Fried's disgraced fund. Bill explains why that's not good news for the public or for FTX's customers. We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode, Powers That Be. Happy Tuesday, everybody. Hope you enjoyed your President's Day weekend. I'm joined today by the illustrious Bill Cohan to talk about Goldman and FTX. But first, Bill, how was your three-day weekend? Well, Peter, I will tell you that yesterday, Monday, was actually my birthday. So Happy birthday! Thank you. Thank You're you. You're 42. Just 43. Just mm -hmm. 43. Yeah. Congrats, I'm actually man. one of the youngest people at Puck. So, you know, I, <laughs> I look up to my elders as I should. Thank you for respecting no, just, us. Yes, trying very hard. <laughs> well, I'm going to invalidate uh, what I just said because you wrote a piece about discontent within Goldman Sachs last week. And you mentioned that you've seen this story before because you've been around for so long, despite only being 43 years old. You write that critics are out for David Solomon, the CEO and DJ. <laughs> um, what just for people who aren't following like the finance world day in and day out, like why should people care about what's going on inside Goldman? And then also why are people cranky with DJ David? Is that his DJ name, by the way? DJ Diesel. Oh, right. as in right. David right. Solomon. Look, I mean, you know, probably most people don't need to care about Goldman Sachs. Most people don't need to really care about Wall Street, but it sort of is like the operating system of capitalism. It's sort of like there in the background. It's important if you need it. It's important if you know how to use it. Or it's like, uh, do you need to know actually how, you know, a car engine works to drive a car? And I think, you know, the answer is no, but there are a group of people who are really into like knowing how a car works. And they are really into like tuning it up so that it'll go really fast, really efficiently. And, you know, they're really into a Lambo, for instance. So Goldman Sachs is kind of like the Lambo of Wall Street. Mm. So it's like tuned, you know, really high. Everybody's working kind of overtime all the time. It's sort of like the gold standard of Wall Street. And, you know, it's sort of operating in the background. And you may have no idea it's there. But if you care about finance, if you care about how Wall Street you know, really works, then you got to care about Goldman Sachs. And, you know, that's why I wrote a book about it, which is really why I know so much about it. Not only did I, you know, compete against Goldman Sachs for nearly 20 years as a banker, but then I mm -hmm. really flipped out and 
spent another two plus years writing a book about the history of the firm and you know how it got through the 2008 financial crisis so i think i can sort of put what's going on now into perspective you know people whine because and it's not attractive by the way it's mm -hmm. you know they they probably got paid way more than they should have in 2021 when goldman had a great year and you know so they got paid down this year when Goldman didn't have quite as good a year as they had in 2021. You need to sort of look at these things over a period of time of two to three years. How do you get compensated over a two to three year period? You know, markets go up, markets go down, you know, because the markets, you know, are inflated because of the actions of the Fed having nothing to do with you as an investment banker at Goldman Sachs. You, yeah, you know, fine. You think you're wonderful. You think you're really fabulous because Goldman is making all this money thanks to the Fed. And therefore, you think it's you and you deserve to get paid, you know, oodles and oodles of money. You need to sort of face the reality of the situation is that there's nothing else you can do pretty much in the world and get paid as much as you can as a banker or a trader on Wall Street without putting any of your own capital at risk. You know, it's one thing if you're like, you know, Elon Musk or whatever, or Mark Zuckerberg, you know, look, you're a founder, you put, or or an investor as Elon Musk was in Tesla, and you put a lot of your own capital at risk, you should get rewarded for that. But investment bankers don't put their own capital at risk, not anymore. Mm -hmm. So they're just raking it in as interstitial men and women, and they think that their uh, shit smells great. But in fact, they're just benefiting from the fact that they've got the jersey on, which is why I love what James Gorman said, the CEO of Morgan Stanley a few years ago, when he said, if you don't like what you're getting paid, go somewhere else. You know, this is what we're going to pay you. It's more than you can get paid anywhere else doing anything else. And if you don't like it, go somewhere else. Mm -hmm. So that's what I say to these anybody whining at Goldman Sachs right now is if you don't like it, go somewhere else. You know, test mm -hmm. the market. See what it's like when you don't have that jersey on see see what your your worth is like in the market so what i say is stop your belly aching be lucky that you've got that jersey that you play for that team you know whether they're good or bad or whether you like them or you don't it's like playing for the new york yankees it just enhances your brand by being part of that team so stop your belly aching you know that's a totally different question than whether you know morale is bad at goldman sachs and Mm -hmm. David Solomon is at risk for his job because he's doesn't embody the Goldman Sachs ethos or whatever that is. I, I find those are two different issues. What what is the second issue then? Their profit slumped like 60% last quarter. The board cut his pay. And then Solomon, I guess, told a bunch of investors in Miami a few days ago that he wishes he had laid off more people sooner. They've laid off what, three thousand people recently. Right. Who so who's complaining? The people get who the people who got laid off? Or the people that are still there or both <laughs> <laughs> well well the people the people who got laid off have just you know sort of gone into hiding they don't really uh you're not hearing their voices i think what you're hearing the belly aching that you're hearing is that david solomon championed this foray into retail banking is that a profit-making enterprise and then you're going to lend that money out to somebody and i think you know there's this feeling that this foray has cost Goldman Sachs something like $4 billion uh, of losses, some of which is real and some of which is accounting reserves. 
So, I mean, the way it gets reported is, you know, $4 billion of losses. And, of course, that probably affected the overall bonus pool. And so if you think you have a great year, you know, whether you did or not, and then the bonus pool is down 50% because of losses related to this effort to put Goldman into the retail banking space, and your bonus is cut 50%, but David Solomon's is only cut 29%, mm-hmm. then you're going to bitch and moan. And then when he's flying around, you know, on the private jets, the Goldman private jets, which he bought for Goldman, he bought two of them and, uh, you know, other CEOs before him, you know, made do without them. Uh, and then he, you know, goes off and flies off and has, you know, goes golfing with clients or whatever that sticks in people's craw and he puts sticks isn't in people's craw too. Isn't that what the CEO too. of a gigantic Wall Street bank is kind of supposed to do though? Like, isn't that like a perk of the job? You get a private jet, you play golf, you get to DJ Lollapalooza in his case. Yeah, that's why I think that the board isn't really taken seriously. It's a bunch of noise. And the stock price, by the way, outperformed its peers. Uh, He actually, Goldman made a little bit more money than Morgan Stanley, which Mm -hmm. has a $40 billion higher market cap. The problem when you get right down to it is that Goldman Sachs used to be by far the leader you know, on Wall Street uh, in terms of making more money, in terms of being valued more highly than other banks in sort of being able to convince investors that it was really special and there's a special sauce that went into being Goldman Sachs. Like when Goldman Sachs went public in May of 1999, it went public at four times book value, okay? Now, 24 years later, uh, Goldman Sachs trades at about 1.2 book value, 1.3 book value. Morgan Stanley, its arch rival, which made about the same amount of money Actually, Goldman made a little bit more in 2022 than Goldman did, 11.3 versus 11 billion. It has a multiple book value at about 1.7 times. And so it's worth $40 billion more than Goldman Sachs. Well, that really rankles, you know, the rank and file at Goldman Sachs. And I'm sure they don't appreciate the rank and file, which includes lots of wealthy, smart, sophisticated partners don't like that differential. And don't like that it was probably caused by David Solomon venturing off into retail banking land, which everybody knows Goldman Sachs has no business being in anyway. So, I mean, I get it, though, from David Solomon's point of view, because he wants to get access to a cheap source of capital. And, you know, retail banking is a cheap source of capital. Now, the irony is that he's scooping up retail deposits and paying about three and a half percent interest on them through the internet. And remember, he doesn't have any retail branches. Mm-hmm. JP Morgan Chase has all these retail branches and is scooping up our paychecks that we deposit there and paying us you know, a fraction of 1% interest. So he's getting his money for free. David Solomon has to pay 3.5% for it, which is cheaper than if he borrowed you know, in the long-term debt markets or other debt markets. So it makes sense for David to do that. But, you know, between the losses potentially on credit cards or on loans that are made and the reserves that he has to have against that and the capital that he has to have against that, there, you know, it's affected the bonus pool. So people freak mm-hmm. out. Meanwhile, you know, Goldman Sachs made about eleven point three billion in net income last year. And I I can't remember, but I think JP Morgan Chase made around forty billion of net income, forty-eight billion the year before. So and it's valued at like four hundred and fifty billion. Goldman Sachs is valued at about a hundred and ten billion. So Goldman is no longer the leader. It's it's probably still the leader in in the businesses that 
get people hyped up on Wall Street, like you know M and A and under uh, equity and debt underwriting and and trading, but doesn't trade for the highest multiple of book value. It's not the most valuable. It's probably not the most respected either. Mm. So you know these things rankle. Methinks they doth complain too much. A lot of companies are not giving bonuses at all <laughs> these days. So, you know. Where else can you make the kind of money that you make on Wall Street without putting up your own capital at risk? So stop complaining. That's, that's correct. Um, Bill, we come back. I want to talk about a financial firm that had a way worse year than Goldman and pretty much every other company, and that is FTX. Welcome back, everyone. I'm still here with Bill. We're talking FTX now. A bankruptcy judge last week denied a call for an independent examiner to look into what the F happened <laughs> at FTX when it collapsed in November. Where did all this money go? Uh, Bill, you wrote in some news and notes on Puck a few days ago about this. You disagree with this decision big time. Can you explain why? Yeah, uh, Peter, this really pisses me off. Um, you know, an, ex an examiner, what is an examiner? An examiner is an independent party, usually uh, a lawyer from a reputable law firm, who are mandated by the bankruptcy court to investigate what happened to cause the bankruptcy and where all the assets are and who all the creditors are, you know, to really lay out what the spider web is here and it's it's incredibly useful yes it's expensive but it's incredibly useful and when you're talking about many billions of assets 10 billion of assets many billions of debt and equity lost yes it's ridiculously expensive it's a hundred million dollars i don't mean to the little you know make little out of that at all i mean it'd probably be a hundred million uh you know the lehman bankruptcy anton Volukas spent like 60 million i think enron they spent 100 million and those uh, are legal fees basically yeah legal fees yeah legal fees i'd be happy to do it for a lot less than 100 million um <laughs> uh, you know i write books for just a little bit less than that and so oh. be willing to do this for less but look i mean they have i'm pretty sure they have like subpoena power so they can really get to the bottom of what happened and it's incredibly useful and powerful document it's great for the public right mm -hmm. it's it's sort of like the january 6th report or the 9 11 report it's mm -hmm. incredibly useful it's a roadmap. it's useful the credit for the creditors it's useful for customers it would probably be useful for sam bankman freed and it's stunning to me that the debtor john ray uh, who's now the CEO of the company and his the FTX debtors didn't want it. Uh, they enlisted Sullivan and Cromwell, their lawyer, you know, who's potentially has a lot of conflicts here and might have not fared particularly well uh, in any examiner's report given their pre-petition role as a legal advisor to Sam Bankman-Fried and the company. Objected to the U.S. trustee's request for an examiner. And, uh, you know, the judge sided with the debtor, Sullivan and Cromwell. And for reasons that I don't understand, the creditors committee also agreed that an examiner here wasn't necessary. I mean, basically their argument was it's going to cost a hundred million. Yes. So that's 
that's a hundred million dollar leakage out of the estate that could go to creditors, which I get, I get that argument. But they argued that John Ray is doing his own investigation and he's really good at this. So we should just let him continue on his investigation. The creditors are doing their investigation. We don't need an independent third party investigation. I think that's a bunch of hogwash because this is a highly a public case now. We're talking billions, one of the largest bankruptcies in U.S. history. And there was an examiner in the Enron case or an examiner in the Lehman case. Uh, there were examiners in a bunch of bankruptcies that I worked on when I was at Lazard. And so there should have been an examiner here. And it would have served the public really well. I think it would have served Sam Bankman-Fried uh, well. It would have served the creditors well. It would have served all the customers well. And so now these investigations are going to take place, you know, that John Ray is doing and that, you know, supposedly the creditors committee is doing. I'm pretty damn sure those are not going to be made public. So they're going to mm -hmm. be used privately, is my guess, to put together a plan of reorganization and to try to, you know, I'm sure the creditors committee will use whatever investigation they come up with to try to get a larger piece of the pie here, you know, which is fine. But we, the public need to know, we, other creditors need to know, we vendors need to know, we customers need to know what really happened here. And without an examiner's report, you're not going to know what really happened here. We don't know what really happened here. And we probably won't know now. And the reason I think Sam Bankman-Fried would be interested in knowing is because he's trying to make the case that he didn't do what he's accused of doing, which is siphoning off you know, what, something like $10 billion of customers' money and using it for his hedge fund Alameda research. And mm -hmm. an examiner's report would have gotten to the bottom of that. Now it's going to be politicized uh, because of what the creditors are going to want to prove, what we're going to want to say happened, what the debtor's going to want to say happened. There's not an independent examiner looking at this. Plus, he's got this whole serious, extremely serious criminal case against him which could put him away for the rest of his life. And so now, you know, the Justice Department is going to weigh in with their point of view on this. And again, I would think that there would have been a plenty of room here for an independent report. I mean, when Anton Volukas did it for Lehman, it was like 600 pages long, and everybody just dined out on it for months. I mean, it was an incredibly important document. And we deserve that here, and we're not going to get it. You also had a source in the in the courtroom where this was being presented to the judge who said that the Sullivan and Cromwell lawyer that was representing FTX, quote, ran circles around the attorney from the U.S. trustee, which is the bankruptcy wing of the <laughs> Justice Department. So like the fact that that might have been the reason is also pretty frustrating. The last thing I want to ask you is just about John Ray generally. I mean, I know he did Enron, the bankruptcy at Enron. He's doing FTX now. What's your take on him generally? I mean, the judge said he's competent. His investigation will be fine. I know you disagree with that, but is he the I, I, right guy to preside over this? Yeah, I, I mean, I I disagree with this decision, but I think generally speaking, John Ray was a good choice. I know, mm. you know, SBF doesn't like that choice. Okay, look, it, it's somebody. It, it's either going to be John Ray or somebody like John Ray, somebody who has presided over an extremely complicated liquidation slash. Uh, reorganization. I don't think we're at the liquidation stage yet. Uh, we might get there right now as a chapter 11. So there's a debtor in possession who's going to reorganize. And I think, uh, you know, I don't know what they're going to reorganize around, maybe FTX US. 
Uh, maybe there's a real business there. I don't know. So we're waiting to see. I think, yeah, he's probably uh, the right guy. I mean, you know, I think more concerning, honestly, is I would have thought Solomon and Cromwell would have been conflicted out of this assignment going forward because of their role pre-petition. You know, that didn't happen. You know, if you read some of the filings, you can just see how big a role Solomon Cromwell had in all of this. And there were, you know, the general counsel of FTX had been a Solomon Cromwell partner and he, you know, bent over backwards to try to get Solomon Cromwell this assignment, which is obviously incredibly lucrative in large part because he said that he wants to go back to Solomon and Cromwell when this is over. You know, that whole revolving door aspect of this is a little uh, disconcerting, how shall we say. But, they, you know, look, they're a world-class firm. And so if they can keep their uh, conflicts in check, then I guess it it should all be okay the eyes of the world are on this case. I mean, this Celsius network, other firms in the crypto space are going to bankruptcy kind of almost every day now, but this is the case that everybody's focused on. So they better not screw it up. And, and again, right. I think an examiner would have been a really good and valuable independent third-party check. And it's a shame that the judge decided this way. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. At least you compelled me with your writing to agree with you, uh, which you, which you often which is do. great. That's the <laughs> That's idea. Great. That's your, writing That's your compelling idea. writing. Yeah. Um, yes, you know, the the rare transferable skill of going from working uh, on Wall Street to writing lots of great books and being a wonderful writer. You and Michael Lewis, man. <laughs> Congrats. Wow. That's um, good company. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, man. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13, and produced by Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck. Puck.